Good evening, Harvest. We're going to turn tonight to Hebrews chapter 1 and 2. Uh, we're going to be focusing on Hebrews chapter 2. This morning we had the great privilege of hearing from God's Word about what the Lord is preparing for us from the end of the book of Revelation. And tonight we're going to look at Jesus. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson in his book, The Whole Christ, it says there that uh, one of the things that was often put on a Scottish pulpit was the word, sir, we would see Jesus, to remind the preacher uh, that uh, the central task is that the people would come to see and to know God, to know Jesus. And so hopefully tonight we will come to be refreshed in knowing Jesus and knowing God more and better. We're going to read from Hebrews chapter 1. Just the four, first four verses, and then we'll read uh, the whole of chapter 2, but we're going to be focusing on verses 10 through the end of chapter 2. So Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since every message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying... I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. 
Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's bow together in prayer again. O God, we pray that you would bless this, your word, to our hearts. We pray that you would help us to, to see you more clearly, to be refreshed and uh, to remember who you are. Oh Lord, we pray that you would help us in this. Uh, we are weak. We need the gracious work of your Spirit. And so we pray, come and speak to us and work in us that we would know you and love you and worship and adore you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, can you think of a time when someone did something wonderful for you and maybe helping you at a time when you really needed it? Uh, maybe showing you tremendous generosity and kindness. Well, I don't know, there might not be a specific time in your mind that really stands out. Maybe you could think there's just, maybe there's just a myriad of times when people have been kind to me and helped me in small ways. I'm surrounded by uh, the love of many and the kindness of many. Well, our passage tonight from the book of Hebrews is all about us being made aware, having our eyes open to someone doing something wonderful for us on a cosmic scale with infinite joy, generosity, love, and kindness, and tremendous weightiness and vast cost. If you look with me to the opening verses of Hebrews chapter 1, the author of the epistle tells us there that, that God has spoken through the history of this world in many ways, at many times in the past, through the prophets, through the whole span of the Old Testament. Those thousands of years before the coming of Christ, God was speaking, revealing Himself to the world, to His people, opening blind eyes to, to bring them to know Him. But this all culminated, the author says, in these last days, God has now spoken to us by His Son. And the author describes His Son. Uh, what is the Son like? Look with me to Hebrews 1, verse 2. In these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, uh, the Son who is appointed as the heir of all things. God the Son is the one who is inheriting everything, the entire universe, all of cosmic reality. His Son, who is the one through whom He created the world. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in their triune harmony, created this universe, all that is. But that creation especially took place through the Son. The Apostle John speaks about that that all things were created through Him. And Paul does in Colossians as well. 
And so the Son was the one who took part in speaking the universe into existence and in, in breathing the breath of life into Adam and creating Eve. God the Son was there at the very beginning doing this. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. This means God the Son is, is as fully God as the Father and the Spirit. He's the, the fullness of God. The exact imprint of His nature. He's fully divine in all that that means. He's infinite. He's eternal. He's unchanging. In all of His beautiful attributes, His power and majesty. And the author goes on to say, this Son is the one who right now upholds this universe by the word of His power. He sustains all of the Milky Way, every galaxy, every planet. And this world, which is like a little speck of dust in the midst of the vastness of the universe, He knows everything that happens on this earth. He sustains every life and breath all the intricacy of the beauty of creation that He's made, God the Son upholds the universe by the word of His power. And this God the Son, the author goes on to say in this opening verse or two, made purification for sins, and He's now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, and He's superior to the angels. And this in the opening of chapter 2 is why the Apostle says we need to pay close attention to what God is saying to us by His Son, who is the, the Son of glory and power and majesty. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Well, in verses 5 through 9, the Apostle goes on to say that this Son, who is so much greater than the angels... Angels are glorious beings. They're powerful. They're holy. They can do remarkable things that we can't do. But Jesus, God the Son, is far above the angels. He created the angels. But for a time, He became lower than the angels to suffer and die. Now, the, the people around the Hebrews... Uh, their fellow Jews, so there were the Hebrews that this letter was written to, they're the Hebrew Christians. Uh, they were coming out of synagogues, out of Jewish communities. And a question that would face them right away would be, well, you say that, that there's God the Son and He became lower than the angels? Uh, how does this fit? How could this be right? If someone so glorious would lower himself beneath that, why would he become a man? Why would he do that? When everything was his. Everything was in, in perfect happiness and joy and bliss in the Trinity. Well, that's what we want to look at tonight and focus on. That's what the author of the Hebrews by the Spirit now unpacks for us. He really answers the question, why God became man. And that's unfolded here for us really in two ways. First of all, how Jesus, how God the Son identified with us. And then the author unpacks a whole series of reasons why this happened. Why did he do it? Well, jump with me to verse 14. 
There we read, since the children share flesh and blood, God the Son himself likewise partook of the same things. You know, all of us here tonight, sitting here, myself standing here, uh, we're flesh and blood people, aren't we? Uh, We have bodies, we have blood, we're creatures, we have a body and a soul, we're created by God, and the verse tells us here that, that because we are embodied beings, because we have bodies and souls that God the Son decided to partake of the same. He likewise partook of the same for the children. What's that referring to? Since the children share in these, he himself partook of the same things. It's really an amazing, glorious mystery, isn't it? We have the divine Son, who is spirit. He's omnipresent. It means that throughout everything that is, there is the Son. God the Son is here. So the Father and the Spirit, they're omnipresent as the Godhead. That God the Son is omniscient. He knows everything. He's all wisdom and all knowledge. He's omnipotent. He has all power. He's majestic and glorious. And eternally so, and infinitely so, and unchangingly so, and in perfect purity and holiness and, and love and wisdom in all that He is. And He's the one who did this. He, he took to Himself, He partook in your and my nature. And this means that the divine Son took to Himself, you could say added to Himself, our humanity. So that now He is the God-man. So that God the Son now has two natures in one person. He's fully God and He's fully man, but in one person. And so, this is the way He is now. It's without any mixture or confusion of the two, and yet in perfect harmony, in perfect fullness of each, He's still fully God, unchangingly so, but He's also fully man. And being a man, He's, he's local. He's finite. He's still growing in knowledge. He's like us. He's, the God the Son is identified with us to the extent that He is just as much human as you and I are right now. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, is the Word made flesh. This means uh, He has a body. He's got bones and muscles, veins and skin, just like you and me. He has a mind like you do and I do. He's got a face. He has expressions. He's got emotions. He's fully man. He's got personality. Yes, he's now in resurrected glory. He's ascended and enthroned in heaven, but he's gone through and experienced this earthly life. He he willingly became like us, creatures made in God's image. 
He experienced life under the curse. He's like us in every way. It's really only two ways that, that his humanity is different from ours. And these two ways are, number one, he perfectly fulfilled all righteousness. He, he threw out his entire incarnation on this earth from conception onwards. In his humanity, he never sinned. He always obeyed in fullness, in joy, and in beauty. And then secondly, he willingly substituted himself, identified himself with our sin, so uh, that Martin Luther could say, in his body, not in the sense that he committed them, but in the sense that he took these sins to himself, that Jesus became on the cross, David the adulterer, Peter the denier, Paul the persecutor. And so there's this great and glorious reality and mystery of God becoming man. But why? Why would the eternal Son of God, the heir of all things, the one who's created all things, the brightness of God's glory do this? Well, our passage goes on to unpack at least nine reasons why the Son of God has so completely identified with His people. We'll back up a bit to verse 12 as we unpack these. Look with me to verse 12. What does our text say there? It says, That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, in verse 11, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Why did God the Son become man? He did it to reveal and to display Himself, to reveal and display God to you and me. He did it to proclaim God to His brothers, to tell us of God. In Jesus, we see the fullness of the Godhead bodily. We see it by faith from the Word, but one day we will see Him with our eyes. He's a fullness of of the revelation of God physically in our humanity. He did it to display God to us in intangible human terms. And so the Son of God stooped down in love to our creaturely level to engage us, to teach us, to display God to us. He also did it, second part of this verse, to lead us into worship. Read with me there. It says, And in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. It's an amazing thought that Jesus right now in heavenly glory, the one who is God and man, not only receives our worship, he delights to lead us in worship, lead us into the worship of God. What's another reason? Verse 13. We read there, it says, and again, quoting the Old Testament, I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Why did God the Son become man? One of the reasons he did this is to show us true faith in God. I'm not sure that you've ever thought about this, but as Jesus lived on this earth, he lived by faith. He trusted in the Word. 
He grew in knowledge and understanding in His humanity. He he looked to the Father. He did it to show us true faith in God and to shepherd us in that faith. He actively and steadily put His trust in the Father, pioneering the way of faith for us. Jesus, as the God-man in His humanity, knows what it is to trust. To trust, to rely on the Word and the promises of the Word. He's identified with us to that extent. Verse 13 and 14, as we move on, and I get, Behold, I and the children God has given me. He goes on to say, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. In verse 15, And deliver all those. Here we see, first of all, that God the Son did this for our salvation. And we're certainly familiar with this. Jesus did this taking our flesh and blood to go to the cross in our flesh and blood, to take our place, to do it for us. As we unpack those verses, we see there in verse 14 that it talks about destroying the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. In what sense does the devil have the power of death? We know ultimately God alone has power over death. God's the one who appoints the day of our death. God is the one who said the wages of sin are death. So what does the author of Hebrews mean here when he says that, that Jesus, uh, through death, through going to the cross, destroyed uh, the devil, the one who has the power of death? Well, in our sin, we are under Satan's dominion, under Satan's rule when we're apart from Christ. By choosing Satan's lie over God's truth, Adam followed Satan's lead and became a slave to Satan's rule, came under the power of sin at its ultimate end, which is death. Jesus, in His incarnation and taking our nature to Himself, entered into this world as the second Adam. He lived out all that we're called to in perfect holiness took the weight of God's wrath and curse against us and victoriously made sacrifice for us, going through death death itself. And so through this, Jesus won victory over sin and death and Satan. He broke the power of sin and Satan He accomplished salvation so that we can be freed and have that power over us broken as well. And this flows into verse 15. He did this to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You know, the last part of World War II, General Eisenhower led the final push, the Allied push, up into Germany. And one of his tasks as a general leading this push was to have mapped out all the locations of the concentration camps where the Jews were and those who had helped the Jews and others. And all of those death camp inmates, those who were still alive, were living in those camps 
in constant fear of death. And as the Allied armies came and as word came, the Allies are getting closer. And then finally, the SS units and the German military units were destroyed by the Allies. The people in the concentration camps could walk outside that barbed wire. They could receive care and help and love. And they could be freed from the imminent fear of death. They were suddenly made safe. Jesus has gained a far greater victory for us over death itself. And His intent in doing so is both to free us from eternal death, but also to free us from the fear of death more and more. The Heidelberg Catechism tells us that through Jesus' victory as deliverance of us, our death as Christians now is no longer a payment for sin, but an entrance into life. Because Jesus died on the cross, your death, if you trust in Jesus, you're a Christian, it, it's not to atone for any of your sin. Instead, it's an entrance into eternal life. And so Jesus also accomplished this. This is one of the reasons why he took our nature to himself. And what a comfort that Jesus is the one who's gone through this. He's the captain of our salvation. He's gone through death, so he knows what it's like to die. He's done it. He knows what it's like to have a soul, our soul, separated from our body. And what it's like to experience that separation. He's walked through that. And so our Savior, who's fully God and fully man, He's a person of our flesh and blood. He knows entirely what it's like to breathe a last breath. What it's like to experience that separation. And then what it's like to experience resurrection. Which He did. Jesus said, I have the power to lay down my life and to take it up again. And He did gloriously and powerfully. Well, why else did Jesus identify with you and I? In verse 16, the apostle says, He did it to help to rescue fallen men, but not fallen angels. You know, there's a real mystery here. We don't deserve eternal life and salvation any more than anyone who fails to receive it, any more than fallen angels who will uh, go to hell eternally. And one Bible commentator, John Owen, says this, As to the angels, he spared them not. He spared not them, but he spared not his own Son for us. In verse 17, another reason. Why did God the Son take our humanity to Himself? Why did He become man? Read with me. Therefore He had to be made like His brothers in every respect, 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. He did it because we need someone between us and God. God is pure holiness, infinite purity. We're sinners. We've sinned against God. We've hated Him. We've offended Him. We've taken His good gifts and we turn them against God. We take them for granted. We ignore Him. We sin against Him in countless ways. We need a mediator. We need somebody to be between us and God. And God is the one who has solved the problem. God in His unilateral love coming to us in and through the Son. And so Jesus took your humanity to Himself so that He could become your merciful and your faithful high priest. The perfect go-between between you and a holy God to bring you back to God. This is what the Old Testament taught over and over. Those thousands probably millions of sacrifices. You imagine day after day, animals being slaughtered, blood being shed. Every day, reminders over and over of the awfulness of sin, of the need for atonement. And the high priests were the ones who who reminded the people that they couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go in there, and only once a year. And they had to be so careful going there. They were sinners. And they didn't always mediate for people well or intercede for them well. They weren't always faithful. They weren't always merciful. In fact, their own lives showed that they needed the sacrifices just as much. But Jesus is that perfect high priest for us. And He made the perfect sacrifice. We see that. In the end of that verse, he did it to make propitiation payment for the sins of the people. Jesus took your nature to himself so that he could make the blood payment, pay the wages that your sins have earned. Your sins have earned and my sins have earned really a cosmic weight of wrath and justice. That's what we deserve. And Jesus stepped into that when He went to the cross. He did it to make that propitiation, that complete payment for us of infinite value, of perfect justice. And He did all of this to be sympathetic to us, to be merciful. And last verse, verse 18 Because he suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus did all of this again in our humanity, and that means he was just like you and me, except for without sin, but he was tempted. He was tempted to sin over and over and over again. But every time, he gained victory. He pursued that with passion, with love, because he knew this was what was needed so there could be a right sacrifice, a right atonement for you and me. 
He did it as well to understand us, to sympathize with us. He knows what it's like to battle against sin. To know what, he knows what it's like to have, bear the full weight of temptation in every way that we are. And so He's able to help us perfectly and to comfort us and to encourage us as we come to God. I don't know if you ever read the novel To Kill a Mockingbird. In it, the main character, Atticus Finch, says, you never really understand a person until you climb into his skin and walk around in it. Well, Jesus has done this. God the Son has done this. He's identified with us in every way, without sin. As God incarnate, He has come to our level to show us that He understands us. He understands us fully and even far better than we do ourselves. So as we think about this this vast list, this big package, this beautiful list of reasons why God became man, what do we say to it? But this is our God. This is our Savior. This is the God and Savior who calls us to worship Him every Sunday. As we stand before Him, as we think of Him, we should be filled with silence and awe and worship and love. And know that this is the God who calls us to Himself to receive freely all that we need for salvation and for eternity. Let's pray. The Lord our God, we bow before You. We thank You so much for all that You have done in taking our nature to Yourself. We think of You right now, Jesus, as You are seated in heaven. You are seated there as a person, just like us, in complete humanity. And at the same time, You are fully God, our perfect Savior, the One who is able to bring us back to God, the one who is our perfect high priest. We pray, Lord, that you would cleanse us from all our sin, that you would give us great joy in your salvation, and help us, Lord, to worship you, to adore you, and to live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll now sing together Trinity hymnal number 193, Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence.